Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. Everybody, I want to take a moment to say hi from me, your host, Lee Vinsel, and from producer and sound engineer Joe Fort of Virginia Tech Libraries. We're coming off the 2021 to 2022 winter break here at Virginia Tech. We got a little rest and relaxation in. Given that we are on an academic schedule, chances are that we'll release sporadically over breaks going forward. Just a heads up there. But now it's back to work. We're really excited about our plans for this semester, and we've got a bunch of great episodes coming your way. As always, we'd love any feedback you have to give, including suggestions for future guests. Now, to kick off this semester, we're starting with an interview with a deep and fascinating scholar, Devarian Baldwin, a professor at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. You know, there's so many criticisms we can make and people have made about the state of higher education in the United States today. For example, in the book, The Innovation Delusion, which I wrote with Andy Russell, and a Chronicle of Higher Education essay titled The Campus Innovation Myth, which I wrote with historian Matt Wisnowski, I've described how even though universities are putting billions of dollars into entrepreneurship centers and innovation campuses, there's no evidence that these things create meaningful innovation or economic growth. We can also talk about how we've transformed undergraduate education into a consumer good primarily focused on training and getting students jobs. We can talk about entire mountain ranges of student debt. We can talk about how schools have become pressure cookers where faculty are squeezed to bringing in external money and churning out publications, often at the expense of spending time with students. But it wasn't until I read Devarian Baldwin's book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities, 
that I really deeply considered the problematic ways in which universities affect the localities they are in. Baldwin is an urbanist who comes out of the American studies tradition and has written extensively about black experiences in cities. In this interview, we'll talk about how his work led him to focus on the role of universities in cities, the negative impact these institutions have on their communities, and what can be done to create a better future. I hope you enjoy our conversation. It was a really fun one for me, and I learned a lot from DeVarian. Get excited. Devarian, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today, man. Hey, Lee. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. I think In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower is a, a really important book. So when you talk about it with strangers, what do, you, what do you tell them it's about? What were you trying to do with it? Yeah, so um, I first start with hit them with the fact that did you know that colleges and universities are the biggest employers, real estate holders, healthcare providers, and even policing agents in major cities and college towns across the country. And most of them say, no, I didn't know that. And I say, well, mm -hmm. this book is about uh, higher education's growing influence on the economic development and urban governance of our cities. Mm -hmm. um, in short, what I call universe cities. And that's how I hit them with it. And then either they're like, they're walking away running or they're intrigued. <laughs> I love that. So one of the stories you open up the book with is, you know, I'm, I should say that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm from the Chicago land. I was born in Joliet, Illinois, so I'll be asking you a lot about Chicago. But oh, uh, you okay. open up the, the, the book with the uh, tale of uh, the relationship between the University of Chicago and the Checkerboard Lounge, this kind of famed blues club on the south side. So can you kind of just kind of give a basic outline of that story and why you think it kind of pulls out some of the themes that that are important to you in this book? Yeah, for sure. So um, in 2003, I was on the Chicago campus for a totally unrelated project, more historical. I was in the archives mm -hmm. in the winter and I came out and there was this protest um, and I followed the sound over to the admin building, which is usually where protests are, student protests are in front of the admin building. And I watched and there was this battle between students and community residents from the historically black neighborhood of Bronzeville on one side and administrators and others on the other side. And there was some media attention for this. And it was there was signs, save the checkerboard lounge, um, stop cultural piracy. Hmm. And being a researcher, I, I, I investigated and found out that the historic checkerboard lounge um, where people had come for decades to to pray at the altar of what was called the Blue Shrine um, on the hmm. south side. Um, on the south side in the Bronzeville neighborhood, um, there had been a, 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 a code violation, basically a problem with the roof. And people thought, oh, this is an easy fix. But then next thing they know, there was announcements all over the urban, all over the citywide press, the metro press, that you Chicago had come in and saved the checkerboard lounge. And what that meant was by picking it up and relocating it, to, um, if you don't know, Harper, uh, uh, Hyde Park is the kind of the college town area of UChicago. And in the middle of Park, um, Hyde Park, there is a UChicago kind of commercial um, uh, uh, property called Harper Court. Mm -hmm. And it's gone through various iterations over the years. But 
that the, the story was that the University of Chicago had saved the Checkerboard Lounge, picked it up and relocated it into this Harper Court shopping district. Mm-hmm. And uh, residents were outraged. And those who had, you know, for the last couple of years had investigated, had invested in what's being called kind of a cultural tourism, like saying, you know, like in the kind of tourist economy that's emerging in the last 20 years, um, how can we uh, capitalize on our heritage? Mm-hmm. So the heritage of black Chicago blues, gospel, you know, uh, uh, black culture. Yep. And so the checkerboard lounge, they were thinking was going to be a centerpiece to that. And so when, when the U Chicago came in and took it, they charged cultural theft, piracy. And what was being revealed on the other side was that for decades, U Chicago had turned its back on its South side um, neighborhoods that surrounded, it, which were primarily black and, and increasingly Brown and yeah. working class or poor. And so their approach to kind of urban control and development was to demolish blocks all around the campus and yeah. either land bank, hold them for greater, you know, for appreciation and land speculation in the future, or turn them into greater parts of the campus, i.e. campus buildings, residency halls, et cetera. And so they had took taken away almost all commercial development in the um, Hyde Park area. So by the time we get to the 90s, and there's all this attention now. People want to come. So the children of suburban sprawl want to come back into the city. They want an urban lifestyle. They want concerts and coffee shops yeah. and fully wired walkways and, and buildings made of glass and steel. For, and for them, that's what urban was. And, and largely what urban was for them was a campus. Mm. So as the, the children of suburban sprawl came back and young professionals came back to this, you know, basically university as campus landscape, you Chicago was caught flat-footed because they didn't have any of that. Right. And so so the the checkerboard lounge acquisition, what residents call theft, was the centerpiece of their attempts to urbanize their environments to capture these interests in yeah. the urban experience for students, for their families, for researchers mm-hmm. and their families. This, yeah. this folk, kind of faux urban experience. And and that just opened the door for me and saying, this is not just, the checkerboard lounge is just the tip of the iceberg for the U Chicago, for you Chicago. Yeah. And you Chicago is the tip of the iceberg for a larger political economy that I call universities. And so how did you come, I mean, your earlier books were, you know, you've always written about cities and, and, yeah. The black experience. Uh, you work in uh, in American studies, but you know, mm-hmm. I mean, your earlier books are on this. How did you come to focus on universities? I mean, how did that story come to the fore in all this other stuff you'd written about sit- urban life? Well, as I, as I said, you know, I was in the archive doing the work that I normally do, and came out, and history yeah. hit me in the face. Yeah, and because I'm trained in American studies, and I've always been an urbanist, when the conflict on the quad confronted me, I had the skill set to investigate. And if I investigate, I couldn't stop. And and I felt like it was my um it was interesting. It was also my duty to follow the story. Mm-hmm. And it allowed me to um deploy um what we call in academia methodology, but what we say in the bigger world, my, you know, my chops yeah. <laughs> beyond archival work yeah. um to to good effect. Mm-hmm. Um, to do investigative reporting, to do a little bit of light ethnography, um, to do some uh, spatial analysis, 
to do the things that I've been trained to do. And and, mm-hmm. and as I followed it, I this this was the. I mean, later people were like, you know, are you crazy? You could you, you this could be career suicide. Mm-hmm. But when I was in it, I didn't even. Sorry, let me. No, no. When I when I was in it, I didn't even see that. I, uh-huh. I, I I just followed the story and just continued to dig, and continue to ask questions. Um, my, I was talking to my one of my former advisors, and Andrew Ross at NYU, about the project early on when I just got this, when I was just ex- exposed to the story in Chicago. Huh. He just got done f- finished writing a book um, about um, environmental sustainability in Phoenix called "Burn on Fire." Huh. He said, "Listen, uh, Arizona State just built a downtown campus in Phoenix. You got to go there." Yeah, and because of him and that conversation, then I I went to Phoenix, uh-huh. and you know, and then, uh, you know, just talking to people and having gone to school at NYU, people were like, you know, wait a minute, New York has become the biggest college town in the country. You mm-hmm. got to come here. Look what look what Columbia's doing in West Harlem. Yeah, and then it wasn't until the end that I turned around and said, wait a minute, this is happening right in my own backyard. Yeah, and so I also investigated Hartford. And so that's kind of how it came. It was kind of what we call, you know, in, in academia, snowball sampling. Yeah. Uh, it kind of snowballed from one thing to the other, and it was kind of organic. And as I told people about it, they were like, duh, but we've talked about the university as corporation, right? We saw, we've seen in, in academia um, the corporatization of the university in terms of having to bring your research to market. Yeah. Um, being evaluated based on a metric system in terms of your work. It's it um uh the shift and we saw this is before the pandemic, the shift to monetizing classes through social media and digital technology, remote learning, um, the adjunctification of the university in terms of moving from tenure track to uh precarious, non-tenured, insecure labor practices. So people have been talking about the corporatization of the university for about 30 years. But when I started doing this work, I said, this is great. But nobody has looked beyond the campus walls. Yeah. That the things that we're saying on the campus are actually happening also beyond the campus. This financialization, this plunder, this wealth extraction um, is all happening beyond the campus walls to a greater Mm. degree in ways that Mm. are impacting people who are not even directly tied to the university. And so that's where I... um, you know, found this work to situate. To be yeah, situated. man, that's it's it's a great point. I think uh, sometimes these that talk about corporatization of higher ed is, you know, driven by our concern about what's happening to our workplaces and, you know, losing track of what we see as ideals and stuff. But it does have much bigger impacts than than just us. Right. It's it's mm-hmm. it's about the communities, too. So so just for, for example, we talk about the work, the workplace of the university, what I'm what I call the knowledge factory. Um, or what some people in the past have said, you know, the point at which the, uh, the, the bell tower became the smokes, the new smokestacks. Mm-hmm. Um, when we think about labor practices, we think about primarily faculty. Right. And not just us, but the broader public. But universities are the biggest employers in cities, period. Right. And the faculty are just one part of that. We don't talk about those who do the groundskeeping work, mm. those who do work in the food services, those who offer the low wage support staff. Right. So when we're talking about universities, the, the primary labor practices that go on at universities are focused are, are organized around 
wait, low wage, right, insecure yep. labor of, that support the so-called uh, uh, efforts or the true mission yep. of the university. And then if we open that up even further and talk about the contingent non-faculty researchers that come to do research and development for the university or for their private partners and in, in big for big pharma or big tech, um, that's another swath of labor that we don't talk about. Yeah. And so it's not a mistake that at Columbia, at NYU, at Clark University, at Brown, workers have been on strike in the last couple of months. Mm. Mm -hmm. And they're exposing or engaging this larger labor sphere. They're tr Some are very uh, close, keeping close to kind of like graduate student labor. But others, like those at Columbia, are like, okay, we're talking about the security guard workers. We're talking yeah. about you know, food service workers. And we're also talking about Columbia's encroachment into West Harlem and its land acquisitions yeah. and how that is impacting neighborhoods and blowing back on the labor relationships on our campuses, that the that the workshops for the research and development are not on campus. They're in these neighborhoods, mm -hmm. on in, in these tax-exempt buildings under the, under the guise of educational purposes. And we can talk about that in a minute in more detail. But all these things are connected that the yeah. way in which universities, what I call universities, are reorganizing land and labor have huge impacts on what it means to be a city or a town. What we talk, what does it mean when we talk about urban governance yeah. and public authority? That the ways in which they move in these cities and towns in terms of land, labor, policing, healthcare, have much bigger impacts than simply ivory tower issues. Yep. I mean, I think you draw that all that out really nicely in the book. I do want to talk about taxes eventually, but I, just on one on the the labor thing. I mean, one thing you really nicely draw out is how there's such large employers in, from in many cases that they're effectively setting the wage floor for these mm -hmm. places, right? Mm -hmm. You know, well, if, actually, if they're, they're, saying the, they're setting the wage ceiling, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. But you're right. I, I, yeah, I, I take your point, no doubt. Yeah, but. Yeah, like so, I talked to. I, I mean, I I, I talked to workers at um, at Carnegie Mellon and at Johns Hopkins and 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 the California system, and so it's interesting because some university workers are unionized, mm -hmm. um, and that's and that's that's important. That's good, but what's happening at most universities? Um, I'm not talking about faculty. I'm talking about the low wage workers. Um, is that the university is shifting to subcontracting. Yep. So if you're talking about Aramark or Sodesco or Wolf Security mm -hmm. or other subcontracting entities in these major areas of, of, of university labor, so then when the university celebrates, oh, we embarked on a contract with Aramark workers or uh, CEIU or, S I'm sorry, SEIU or, you know, what have you, this is great. But though, most of those contracts don't touch, don't apply yep. to the subcontracted laborers. Yep. And so this is so. So then, when whatever wage that the university sets, because they're the biggest, one of the biggest, and sometimes the biggest employer in the city or town, whatever wages they set become the wages that are set for the entire city or town. Right. Um, if they raise their wages, other employers would have to follow suit in order to yep. keep their labor force. Right. And so people don't understand the degree of power that higher education has in this area when it comes to these 
uh, nuts and bolts um, issues of political economy. Yep. And so, you know, the first, like the question, one question is how do we get here when it comes to yeah. universities being in this position? And your, your first chapter, I think, really nicely deals with that, that question. Like, what are some factors that you think lead us to this, this position with universities? Right. And there's a yeah. whole field of study that kind of talks about that, what's called critical university studies. And they talk about the, the, the kind of the fall from grace. Mm-hmm. of higher education, that it once was this cathedral of learning around, and, and then in the 1950s and 60s, we have the Cold War and we have um, what was actually called at that time, the rise of the um, military industrial academic complex mm-hmm. when university research was being uh, servicing, like the Manhattan Project and the rise of Stanford and MIT um, in terms of service uh, uh, servicing their research to government contracts and private uh, military and tech developers at the beginning of the kind of the, 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 the knowledge economy, if you will. Yeah. Um, people usually located there, but the latest scholarship, um, particularly within African-American studies and yeah. ethnic studies, um, is really showing how this is, that's so late in the story. Um, that, you know, my good colleague Craig Wilder's book, his amazing book, Ebony and Ivory, shows that the, the financial arrangements of the higher education as a facilitator of capital goes back to the colonial era and slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if we go to the era of the Civil War, we can talk about the Morrill Act of 1862 and 1890, when we have the rise of the land-grant university um, that was supposed to democratize, and it did to a certain degree, democratize mm-hmm. higher education. But what it was really about was it was was trained was transitioning or training um, uh, the working class and the economy for an industrialized agricultural mm-hmm. system, and also training uh, uh, working class people for the for an industrial work. Mm-hmm. And all this was built on the acquisition. The, the argument was that um, land, government government land, free government land was being given to um, states to create the endowments for uh, land-grant universities. But this land was not free. It was not unoccupied. This was indigenous right. land that was uh, seized mm-hmm. um, either directly or through um, dishonest agreements. And that was the land that was taken and utilized to hmm. um, build out these land-grant university endowments. And so mm-hmm. what some scholars and journalists have been calling land grab universities. Mm-hmm. And so that's in the 1860s and up into the 1890s, um, where the second iteration of that moral act was used to build out um, Jim Crow higher education. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it wasn't through land grants, it was through direct infusions of capital. So the, the former Confederate states that had in, in, engaged in treason to the nation, they were now given money to build out their land grant institution, but they were given additional money. So the, 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 the policy was that you can't discriminate with these universities. But, but but lo and behold, surprise, surprise, these Southern states were given additional money that they used to build out inferior and underfunded historically black houses and universities. Huh. So, you know, six years before Plessy v. Ferguson made Jim Crow the law of the land, mm-hmm. the federal government had underwritten a Jim Crow university system through the 1890 version of the Morrill Act. <laughs> so then we get to the 1920s and the build out of community colleges um, in cities to help, again, bolster and create that industrial labor force and the separation of, 
um, what was considered to be the more research-oriented universities. So the um, University of Chicago and other schools didn't want to have to train um, students at the lower level. They wanted to just do high-end research and development. And um, so they created, they, they endorsed that their president at the time um, pushed for community colleges and junior colleges. So they'd have to, you know, be sullied with that general education. So the point I'm making here is that a lot of the things that we see and we identify as being new yeah. and post-World War II, when we look at especially people of color mm-hmm. and their histories, um, higher ed was democratic for, for, for white Americans, the working class white America to a certain degree, but it was exclusionary on racial and, and racial and gender lines. And a lot of the wealth was extracted from black and brown and, and, and indigenous folk to make this so-called democratic higher education possible. So what's yeah. happening now, the kind of what was me about higher education is that the conditions that mo- that many people felt <laughs> before World War II are now being felt by greater swaths of the student population and their families, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, so, so you, w- what I hear you saying, if I'm hearing you right, is that the trends you see playing out in cities when you look back, that's just a much longer mm-hmm. kind of arc of the same. Um, do you think there right. are, I mean, are there different relationships between, you know, universities and cities that have changed in like the last 30 to 50 years or something like that? Are there certain tr- transitions yeah, you see for there? Sure. Yeah. So in, in the 1950s and 60s, you have the rise, kind of the early iterations of, of what I call later the knowledge economy, these relationships yeah. between universities and and private developers that is ramping up because of all the federal money that comes into universities to do this work. So there's yeah. that. But then when we get to sixties and seventies, there, there are massive social movements by these people that were excluded from universities, yeah. women, African-Americans, Latinx communities, LGBTQ communities, um, um, uh, SDS, working class whites that still weren't getting into the same degree. So this is where you have massive push, massive, uh, advocacy to get into the schools. And so there more and more people from the, the, the demos, if you will, are yeah. gaining access. But then that only lasts for about 10 years until we begin seeing uh, the neoliberal approach to higher education. So at one point in time, like I got to talk about city universities in New York and in LA and other states, they were free. Yeah. Right? And so that's a great signal when people say, oh, well, you know, the th- at the end, I offer recommendations, I offer critiques. Well, you know, you have these critiques and well, what's the solution? Well, the solutions are embedded in our past. So in the 60s and 70s, in the, in the revolutionary era of that period, of that, that liberation moment, um, student activists at City University and other schools advocated for not just free admission, but they also advocated that, well, well p- uh, public uh, secondary education has not prepared students to compete. Mm in the workforce. And so they argued it's the city university's responsibilities to catch residents up to speed, to prepare them for the what they saw as the coming, the post-industrial or de-industrial economy. Hmm. And so for a while, um, city universities in New York were not just free, but open admissions and with uh, support services and remedial courses to catch students up to speed for what had not been offered them in secondary hmm. education. Yeah. Then if you look at, for example, at uh, community colleges in places like Chicago, um, uh, uh, Crane Junior College, which in the 50s and 40s and 50s and even like even the 30s have been a great gateway for working class white ethnics 
on the west side of Chicago to gain access to four-year schools and to gain access mm. to the workforce. But as the demographic of the west side changed and it became blacker and browner, yeah. um, there became a wall. And the services to help um, push um, those who had graduated with an associate's degree to a four-year school no longer were happening. So the students there took over Crane Junior College and renamed it Malcolm X Community College. Oh, and, right. and, and with that came a whole new set of expectations and approaches to what higher education should and could be. So they created a prison annex for incarcerated residents hmm. so that they could still get an education. They um, created courses in black studies and ethnic studies. And also on top of that, um, the the public's the, the the security forces at the school were primarily off-duty Chicago PD. They fired them and hired a a, a black security uh, a, a company and made <laughs> sure that they were unarmed. <laughs> so the possibilities for today's higher education can partially be found in our past mm-hmm. in profound ways. So then once once these groups began to do these things, the response was a neoliberal response to say, okay, we're going to take away, we're going to, we're going to dismantle public resources. Yeah. Right. We're going to privatize. We're going to shift the burden and the, it's not that we're going to get rid of public resources. We're yeah. going to shift them to private contractors. Yeah. We're going to privatize public expenditures and resources. Right. And so this, this, this demolishes the public higher education system to the point that now after that neoliberal turn and then a couple of recessions with the housing crisis in 2009 and other things, um, high, uh, states' expenditures to higher education, to public higher education has gone from 60 to 70% of the operating budgets of public higher education down to 20 and 30%. Yeah. So these, the, many of these uh, public universities are, are, are just public almost only in name. Yeah. And yeah, this I mean- creates a new reality whereby... Schools have to be figure out ways to generate revenue. So go ahead. Exactly. You say, go ahead. I, I don't want to no, say. no, that's exactly. No, yeah. you kind of you led me naturally to where I wanted to go. I mean, one 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 thing I want to do with you. I think in the book you do a really good job of looking through the perspectives of various actors. Right? You got university leaders, yeah. you got city leaders, then you got mm-hmm. the communities, and you know, right mm-hmm. now we're in a sense we're talking about you know this issue about declining public funding helps us focus on what university leaders are are facing right they're facing real Mm -hmm. real decreases in available resources so now Mm -hmm. they have to look for new revenue streams you know and that's what all this you know this is what patents and all that stuff ends up being about and you know all these Mm -hmm. kinds of efforts um Mm -hmm. but what you what you end up pointing out is that even these public, you know, public and quotation mark universities that <laughs> are technically nonprofits right. are forced to act like, or at least they see themselves as forced to act as kind of like profit seeking organizations. Mm-hmm. So how does, why is that important to this story? And, and what do you think it kind of leads leaders to do then? Yeah. So Starting in the 80s, but even ramping up after the 2008-2009 financial crisis, um, as we just talked about, the decline in public expenditures to public universities requires schools to be what we call entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. And so I spend a lot of time, 
out at, in Phoenix and Tempe and looking at Arizona State University, they look to this administrator kind of being kind of guy uh, at Columbia by the name of Michael Crow, who is trying, who is, is, gets known for his project called the Earth Institute, where he's trying hmm. to take uh, science and tech research at Columbia and, and create or monetize or speculate on goods and services that will be useful if the country ever moves forward towards moon colonization. <laughs> right? <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds so Michael Crow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, how can we how can we get ahead of the game and engage in some kind of speculative development and, yeah. and organize university research and development to create goods and services that can serve this market if it ever comes online? Yeah, he catches the attention of Arizona State University because this is a you know ASU's in Arizona in the Southwest, the wild wild west where it's research heavy deregulation to on steroids. Yeah, um, and also a location where the housing crash hit the hardest because of high hmm. land speculation. Hmm. And so they bring him there as the president of the Arizona State University campuses. And let's be clear, Arizona State is the biggest university in the country. Yep. Its main Tempe campus houses 50,000 students, but it has five different campuses worth that house over 75,000 students. I mean, it's, it's, it's huge. It's a behemoth. Yep. And so he began the process, and now he's been celebrated. He even, even has his own book called The New American University. I've read and, it, And what that has primarily yeah. meant at one level, oh, yeah. And what that's meant at one, at one level, on one level, he, he does, you know, he, he's talking about, listen, I'm diversifying higher education. Mm. I'm I'm a, I'm looking at I'm targeting Pell eligible students. Our schools are filled with students that are low income. Yep. We are doing the good work. But yep. when you combine it with what he's doing on the faculty and, re, and R&D side, you begin to see, yeah, they're doing the good work, but for what purposes? He's looking at the university campuses as one big land deal. Yeah. That because we don't have the prestige and the cachet of uh, Ivy League or uh, uh, small liberal arts like where I teach, mm-hmm. we don't have the capacity to 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 um, bank on or brand exclusivity. Right. So we're going to pack these campuses to the gills yep. with students and with workshops so that we can make our money. And we're going to inc- we're going to expand to the online sphere. Yep. And it's not going to be it's, it's going to be volume, 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 volume. Yep almost like a pyramid scheme. And so we're going to sell our land to the highest bidders in terms of private developers and we're going to we're going to we're going to offer them our our property tax exemption as a nonprofit mm-hmm. and then the money that they would pay to us to to the state or the city they're going to pay to us so we can do what we want to without the scrutiny of the of the of the public government. Mm-hmm. And on the other side we're going to pack our campuses with Chipotle's and Trader Joe's <laughs> and Chick-fil-A. And we are going to offer up our students as a captive market to these retailers. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be go, go, go. Real. So, the, so, the, so the, the, this university arrangement really exposed the degree to which real estate yeah. is valuable on its own. It's just simply land acquisition. But it's also about the campus as capturing wealth in yeah. the form of 
innovation, research and development on one side through faculty that and, and graduate students who don't receive who receive a fraction of their if their if their if their discovery goes big, the university receives sixty percent of the royalties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's that side, but then on the other side, the contracts, the construction contracts with those who specialize in building out these labs, those who specialize in building apartments, luxury apartments with lazy rivers and climb, rock climbing walls, or just you know holding pens for students. Those those uh, contractors who specialize in food service delivery, mm. those contractors um, that specialize in 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 uh, uh, landscape maintenance, that's all monetization for the university. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes what I you know to today's smokestacks. It is not just generating profit. It's facilitating capital, even mm-hmm. with debt, even in the, in the debt market. It's playing a major role because people get that un- misunderstood and twisted. They say, well, yeah. you know, for example, tra- uh, transfer tech. They're like, well, it's not producing. You know, it's tricky. It's not producing wealth. It's not they're not doing well on the discovery side. But they or, or, or even in sport in the sports, you know, well, the NCAA is in debt. But yeah. what you're not looking at is that when they make a billion dollars in the month of March, or when the um, the private, so when Google or Bombardier or GM um, um, dumps a bunch of money into a campus for research and development, even if the university doesn't, if, if the world, if the if it doesn't produce a patent, mm-hmm. if it doesn't um, create royalties for the university, that money, even in debt, is underwriting a whole host of resources. Yeah, it's paying for high end administrators, top heavy administrators. It's paying for um, uh, uh, upgrade facilities, upgrades, amenities, upgrades. That debt is doing all types of work. Yeah. So people, I think, get that misunderstood that as if profit is the focus here. They're they're banking on the debt in these yeah. various areas. Areas, and that's important to understand. Mm-hmm. If that so makes what, sense, it does. No, I mean, I think what you're, you know, like one way to like kind of summarize what you're saying is like they end up looking at the university enterprise as as mm-hmm. a business on all levels, right? They realize they can right. play with mm-hmm. real estate. They realize they can play mm-hmm. with patents, and so you start right. looking at every you know kind of asset in quotation marks, whether it was a right. moral or knowledge asset earlier, you start looking at everything about in terms of how how can we make money off this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, how is it though? And then so of course, wh- of course, the other side is uh, yeah. quick, the other side is that people celebrate in their press and in their, mm-hmm. you know, look what we did. Look at the buildings we're creating. Look at the, um, you know, the life-saving drugs we're, cre- we're, we're creating research for. Yeah. Um, but they never talk about what are the costs yeah. of this work for those especially who live directly around the campus and by extension, whole cities at large. Yep. So I just wanted to put that out there too. How are I really love the word plundering in, in your subtitle. How are, how are universities plundering American cities? That's a great question. So I'll give you a couple of examples. First, land. Um, universities, higher education is, is designated as a, it's presumed to be a public good, most clearly by its 501c3 status, um, which designates it as a nonprofit. What this offers is property tax exemption because the idea is that what's going on in this land is for educational purposes. 
But what we've saw, seen in, in our discussion thus far is that what's going on in this land is hardly just teaching classes. That on the land, we have workshops for research and development. We have sports stadiums. Um, and we have a host of profit-generating enterprises on campuses that create what former Yale um, University, um, I'm sorry, New Haven uh, Mayor Tony Hart called a property tax gray area. So uh -huh. um, these yeah. this land remains tax exempt, but it's producing for profit research and development that's being sent out into um, the the marketplace and comes back to the campus in millions of dollars of royalties. Now the irony yeah. is that while these universities are producing for profit revenue, they're not paying into what property yeah. taxes support, which includes snow and trash removal, road maintenance, yeah. public schools where many of the children from these universities will go to school. Also think about yeah. Texas a few months ago, the electrical grid. So they benefit from these things, but they're not paying into them because of their property tax exempt status. So the point that I'm making here is that when a Princeton University celebrates its multi-million dollar arrangement with the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly, and they're making millions off uh -huh. of royalties, um, that's being done on the backs of not paying into the public good yeah. where their faculty, their students, the administrators live in profit. So their profit is coming from public wealth extraction. And yeah. so, for example, in 2016, when residents of the, um, the uh, historically black Witherspoon Jackson neighborhood discovered this with Princeton, they filed a lawsuit and actually won a, a few million dollars to compensate for their losses mm. because their property, homeowners' property taxes were going up and they didn't understand why because there had not, there been no improvements because they were sitting next to these yeah. university buildings. And so one, one resident in that lawsuit was so disgusted when he discovered what was, what was going on, he called, he called Princeton University a hedge fund that conducts classes. And so I want to also show, take you back to Arizona State, and I mentioned this briefly earlier, but when they discovered that in research, in, in real estate, uh, kind of uh, the wild, wild west of Arizona real estate, they discovered that because their land, Arizona, State's, Arizona State University's land is owned by the Board of Regents, which is the governing board of a university, Board of Regents, Board of Trustees, Board of Visitors, depending on what state you're in, because it was owned by the Board of yeah. Regents, that it was the land was tax exempt and that they could lease it to private companies. Um, and so State Farm Insurance um, has their regional headquarters, which is the biggest development in the state of Arizona, on tax property tax exempt land because it's on ASU's campus. And so because this money, this tax exempt, Arizona State charges them a lower, a slightly lower fee than their tax yield, than what their tax cost would be. They take that money and they do things like build a, a football stadium. Um, if you are a sports fan, you probably yeah. might wonder, well, how do they get Herm Edwards, the former co a coach of the New York Jets, to come, you know, for a lower, a lower paying job at Arizona State University's football team? Well, it wasn't a lower paying job. The money that they're not paying in property taxes <laughs> that play, that companies like State Farm is paying them, they use that money to offer him a competitive salary. And so this is happening at Arizona yeah. State, at Michigan, at University of Michigan, at the University of Virginia. These state yeah. schools 
are leasing out their land for profitable interest. Again, it's not necessarily for profit, but it frees them up to do what they want with the money that should mm. be paying into the public good. On the labor side, again, yeah. most of the workers are not faculty, but low-wage workers, workers that come from these surrounding neighborhoods of color. So if they are working for subcontractors, mm-hmm. they pay, they're being paid a lower wage. So the university is extracting uh, uh, wages from the working the workforce. People say, well, they should be happy with the job they got. But some of these schools have billion, a million and some even billion dollar endowments. They could pay a living wage, yeah. especially because their endowments are tax exempt, their property is tax exempt, because of the mandate of serving the public good. A part of the public good, I would argue, mm-hmm. would be a living wage. But we think about public good, we think simply about offering educational services, offering classes. But because of the impact that universities have on these mm-hmm. cities, I would say the, the public good mandate has to be broader. Also in the realm of healthcare. Um, yeah. The medical facilities of these universities are tax exempt because they're supposed to offer indigent care to the communities that surround these campuses. Most of these schools have shifted from community hospitals mm-hmm. and clinics to boutique services like cancer research and plastic surgery. And so they've cut out um, uh, community clinics, low cost community clinics. They've even some, some like Johns Hopkins, a world renowned mm-hmm. university hospital in Yale, they've gone on to service residents around campuses but at higher cost than what they're supposed to with the indigent care services. They make their indigent care uh, subsidies hard to find. So they're offering, they're charging them market rate costs for their, for their mm. health services. And then the universities are pursuing the money to the degree of even putting liens on people's homes, you know, uh, garnishing people's students, you know, these people's wages. Many of them that work yeah. at the university, they're garnishing their wage to get their healthcare costs. And they say, well, we do offer indigent care services, but they make those services hard to find on their websites and they don't put pamphlets out front. And so these are all the the different ways in which Mm -hmm. universities are plundering their cities and towns and also in terms of policing. We don't realize that we see policing as about public safety. But what I police, what university police, and we mean to understand that between public and private universities, 75% of campuses have police forces. About most of Mm. them have, are armed. And nine nine out of 10 of these campuses, their police forces have jurisdiction in beyond the main campus. This can be like University of Chicago having jurisdiction wherever there is a campus building. Or this can be like Cincinnati or New Haven. Hmm. Their university police have jurisdiction over the entire cities. And so what this means from a financial side is that they're engaging in extraterritorial expansion. Before the campus buildings get there, the university police, under the guise of public safety are engaging in broken windows policing, right? So over-policing noise ordinances and vagrancy and, you know, public, public, you know, public assembly and things like that, over-policing these residents 
in a way that makes their lives inconvenient so that they will make, so these blocks will make way for campus settlement, right? They're policing in the, in the, mm-hmm. supposedly in the name of public, public safety, but their directives are primarily focused around the university interests, even public universities. So this creates what some students have identified as a two-tier policing system, especially in these predominantly white schools in these predominantly black and brown neighborhoods, mm. where a student and a resident may commit the same infraction, but the student will be sent to the dean of students mm. while the resident will go through the criminal justice system. So black and brown students and residents are seen mm-hmm. as an inherent threat because they're because it's a predominantly white school. So if you're black and brown, you're, you're presumed to be an outsider. And so we see a heightened engagement with racial profiling, over-policing yeah. these neighborhoods as a means of signaling to, to mm-hmm. parents that the neighborhoods are safe. Right? And then also we find an under-policing of mm-hmm. campus crime. So... The biggest crimes on campus are sexual violence and substance hmm. abuse. I've talked to campus police. They don't even keep a database hmm. on serial offenders. Why? Some people will say it's capacity. I say hmm. it's orientation. What if we think about the university brand, who wants to say that their predominantly white school is a campus full of criminals? Right? So, but then they over-police in the surrounding <laughs> neighborhoods yeah. where policing really is not about armed responses, but it's about food insecurity, housing insecurity, trauma care. And a lot of these schools have these state-of-the-art university yeah. hospitals. They could innovate campus policing, which is being called for by abolition activists, saying that policing is about trauma care. They could put their university students and and care workers into these camps. They could be the innovators on this. But what their focus is, and I argue this, is that their job is to seed and set the ground, set the table for what will eventually be, even if you don't have actual physical campus buildings, you have a a campus interest in shaping the livelihood and lifeblood of these blocks. And so this is how this, these range of ways, labor, land, yeah. policing, healthcare, these are the ways in which these universities are plundering our cities and celebrating it as simply just coming from university innovation. But it comes from not paying taxes. It comes from not paying a fair wage. It comes from mm-hmm. not performing the duty of indigent care and healthcare. It comes from over policing. This is this is where that prosperity, this is where that wealth comes from directly extracted from the livelihood and well-being and the wealth of the cities in which these universities sit. So where, what, why do city leaders and elite city, you know, elites in cities like Mike, you know, like the New York City example is really clear. Like Michael yeah. Bloomberg, he's a former mayor at this point, mm-hmm. I think. And he mm-hmm. says, you know, there's they, they look at New York City's Roosevelt Island. They're like, we're going to give whatever schools we end up forming a partnership with like a hundred million dollars right. um, to, to mm-hmm. set up university and then go through this process. It ends up being Cornell university and in some university in Israel, I think a partnership right. between them. And then I think right. it's called Cornell tech basically is it what is. it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, what, why, 
what are what do city leaders see in universities? Why why are they they chasing after these things given how they are, you know, creating all these costs for the surrounding right. communities? Well, the question becomes cost for whom? Yeah. So the financial class, the construction class, yeah. the legal class, the developer class, they yeah. all benefit from this. But the yep. residents that surround the campus, they pay the price. So mm-hmm. there's that. Um, but first of all, just from an interpersonal level, a lot of these city leaders graduate from the same schools. There's a there's a sense of pair. They see themselves in each other. Yeah, They're part of the same group. Part of the same com- community. But also it goes back to that point I was making earlier about um, in the 90s when the children of suburban sprawl were coming back into cities and looking for basically what was the geography um, and the landscape of a campus. Cities were competing with each other to turn their cities into a campus with all the amenities affiliated with the campus to attract that tax base. So they saw, at the same time, as, as we talked about for quite some time, universities were looking for other revenue streams. So between the desire for the tax base and the desire for alternate revenue streams, you see a moment of interest convergence in the 90s and 2000s between hmm. city leaders and university administrators. And, mm-hmm. you know, Michael Bloomberg says, you know, explicitly, like, listen, in the in the 80s and 90s, you know, the Bay Area took, you know, was the Silicon Valley. We, we, we got lost. Yeah. And so for him, the way to recover from that is to create, uh, a, you, know, you know, to create or build out a science and entrepreneurial and a profit in a research and development oriented university. And again, not just because of what goes on in the workshops, but because of the ways in which universities then build out housing and retail. Yeah. These become cities within cities or what I call yeah. universe cities. Right. They make mm-hmm. over whole neighborhoods in the image of the campus that creates this insulated um, safe urban zone for researchers, students, faculty, their yeah. families, the children, tourists. It becomes right. like a Disney, a Disneyland. And if you look at some of yeah. these um, re, uh, uh, um, what's being called um, innovation districts or yeah. knowledge communities, Wexford is a private developer that specializes in building out campus expansion projects for research and tech research and development and pharmacy yeah. research and development. Yeah. There's a there are whole there's a whole cottage industry developers that just do this kind of work. <laughs> That's amazing, right. man. I, I should look into the the contracts around that. So you know, part of my interest is that Virginia Tech, where I'm at, mm-hmm. we're building a over one billion dollar innovation mm-hmm. campus in Northern mm-hmm. Virginia that's tied to Amazon's headquarter headquarter two development right. there, right? And uh, yeah, so I, I need to look into the contracts and see who's doing it. But I mean, that the, the, the VT Innovation Campus leads me to another question. And I think I, I think I see the way your answer might go. But so the research I know I've seen about these innovation districts and innovation campuses is that they don't produce right. innovation and they don't measurably produce economic growth. I mean, there's not there's no evidence mm-hmm. that they do. Right. But but another way to flip that around is like. So what? I mean, somebody's getting right. rich off this. You know, there are there are going to be a, there are going to be elites in cities and within universities 
who will continue to buy to do these things because of the money that's generated mm-hmm. around them of building the I mean the developers are making an enormous amount of money you're saying like there's there's even specialization going the markets are segmenting and there's specialization mm-hmm. around these things and you know in university administrators they get to pat themselves on the back they're making right. a ton of money so you know they're even if it turns out they're not you know these campuses aren't generating innovation and economic growth mm-hmm. for the city on some more aggregate level there's still enough incentives that they're going to keep going down that's this right road. so you basically answered the question for you know what i would say yeah yes <laughs> um <laughs> I, I was i no, was, was great. Uh, i'm, I'm I glad was they were on the, that being was, a medium for no, devarian I'm, I'm glad we're on the same page here and i'm hoping that most people other people see what what, what yeah. you're saying and what i'm saying is that you know if we if we use the ncaa as a perfect example of this like they make a billion dollars yeah. every march in just the month of march um but they say they're in debt but writers are getting right. their salaries coaches are getting their salaries uh, uh, sports stadium construction companies are getting their salaries. M- money and economy yeah. is being facilitated and sustained. It's not offering the wealth that it's promising, i.e. innovation. Yeah, You know, you'll have a couple of yeah. hits, like, you know, maybe a couple of hits will come out of there, some roses to come out of there, and that's and that's fine. Yeah. But there's a much, but not to the degree that the money is being put in there because it's not being put in there for that purpose. There are all these other ancillary, right. <laughs> parallel, um, um, underreported economies that are being underwritten yeah. and sustained with these huge announcements. And but and also there comes a cost in terms of like you know these Amazon projects, they become their own republics, right? Like laws get changed, yeah. zoning laws get changed to offer to offer space. The same. Oh, yeah. And the thing is oh, like, yeah. and, I, and it's some, that's something I talked about in the book. But as I've been talking about this work in general, that, you know, maybe this question or the issue I'm talking about is not just about universities. It's about the campus as a planning economic Mm -hmm. extraction framework because it's the Amazon campus. And so there's some some reciprocal learning between the higher ed model and the kind of tech campus model. That's going on, and there's so much overlap between these two things. Yep. Anyway, let's be clear. You know, we talked about we spent a, a, a ton of time talking about the yep. research and development piece. There's a ton of overlap here um, in terms of extracting, you know, wages, mm-hmm. anti-union, seeding uh, um, land, tax tax exemptions oh, yeah. in exchange for being in these places, and the same cost for the neighborhoods that surround these campuses. Uh, a lot of overlap. Totally, you know, but. I mean, you can see it in the it, the the whole VT plan isn't mm-hmm. clear yet, but you can see all the things you've already talked about in this mm-hmm. in our conversation. In it, it's a big time. It's really mm-hmm. focused mm-hmm. on real estate, even though it's supposed to be about innovation and R and D and all this stuff. Right. It's it's a real estate deal, man. And the, you know they've got you know they you know they they want to bring in people to you know pay leases and mm-hmm. rent and all this kind of stuff. So it, even if it if it if it Sure. If there's a kind of it puts its force itself forward as like an R and D thing, all these other factors that you're talking about about land and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff is in the mix. You know, it's it's one big package at this point. And just so. to highlight another thing, it's also yeah. a low wage labor deal. So man, just real quick, it's a yeah. low wage labor deal. I spoke to folks at Carnegie, at right. Carnegie Mellon, graduate students, and they're like, listen, with my bachelor's degree, um, I could go to a private company and make you know sixty thousand dollars. This is a couple years ago. 
And after a couple of discoveries or some work, I could get $100,000. But at Carnegie Mellon, I get 20, maybe a $30,000 stipend. I do some great research and development. Five years later, I still get the yeah. same stipend. Yet, I'm doing top-level research yeah. for these contracts with Bombardier, Google, whatever, GM, because they're specializing in, in self-driving yeah. vehicles at Carnegie Mellon. And I talk to people, that students that are working on that. And they're like, right. I'm doing this research that would normally have to be done on site. So the 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 company gets mm. basically free research and development because when they give the money to the university, it gets ta it's a tax write-off for educational costs, right? To the to the private company. And then the university yep. gets thousands of dollars, maybe even millions of dollars, um, to to pay these low stipends to the graduate students, to pay the faculty over um, 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 supervisor, mm. and to dump a bunch of money in the amorphous category of overhead costs, right? And then the, the, the student workers yep. get screwed. And these workshops are in these, at the center of these real estate deals. So these private companies like Amazon, other places, they love to partner with universities because of these various forms of tax sheltering. They, because of the university, the property is tax, is tax sheltered. Yeah. Um, the labor is low wage exploitative. Uh, you know the the roads get paid for by the city. <laughs> all this, yeah, over all these overhead costs put them in a more competitive aspect of the market compared to other industries or or, or industry or companies in the same industry that are not university affiliated. Right, they can charge lower costs because many, so much of their overhead is taken hmm. care of because of this yeah. university-private company partnership. And we see this in a lot of cities with companies that do private pharmaceutical work or even private property management work. They can't compete with the companies that are a partnered with a university mm. because they have mm. bigger costs. Yep. Thank you for saying that. I mean, this is one of the things that confuses me I mean, there's mm. a little part of the back of my brain that's like libertarian <laughs> or something. And I'm like, what are, what is what what are these public organizations right. doing competing with private enterprises in Mar like mm. if you were a, 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 you know, a small developer or a, a small business in northern Virginia, you couldn't right. you don't have all these resources to bring to bear. And yet you're being competed with by effectively mm -hmm. a private yep. organization or I mean, a public organization. You know, it's a university. It's a weird it's a very weird um, thing in our right. kind of supposedly capitalist uh, society. But um, yeah. I want to talk about, you know, I want to talk about better roads forward. I want to I want to briefly at least briefly talk about University of Winnipeg. I loved your epilogue where you talked about that. But first, before we get there. I want to talk about something you were you we talked about on Twitter and you were mentioning earlier, which is I it seems to me if I when I listen to you that it's very mm -hmm. important to you that we not look backwards, that we not look right. back in time and present pr pretend there was mm -hmm. some golden mm -hmm. age before exploitation <laughs> and, right. and kind of, you know, and dirty practices in universities. Yeah, for sure. That it, 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 there is no golden age. I mean, you said it. There is no golden age. We got to look forward. If universities are our new companies, and our cities and communities are their company towns, we have to think about the pervasive nature of universities in our life, and because of that, hold them accountable in these various areas. Like 
the, the communities mm. I talk to, they don't want to get rid of a university. They don't want the university mm-hmm. to go away. They just want more equitable practices. If you're going to be in our yeah. lives in all these ways, then offer living wages, pay your taxes, um, open up the campus and turn it into a commons. Um, they also argue like, listen, you know, we need to, and this is something that's very sophisticated from residents. Mm-hmm. Like we need to get rid of the private loan, student loan market. We got to go, this is one where we got to go back or we, we, we almost went there and then, and then turned to the student loan market. Mm-hmm. We got to start directly funding higher education institutions so that you don't have students carrying individual, as individual consumers, jumping from school to school or, mm-hmm. or to the highest bidder so that you got schools competing with each other with lazy rivers yeah. and rock climbing walls. Public education being publicly funded so that you don't create these sub, sub uh, subaltern yeah, markets. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Um, so, you know, there are things like pilots, payments in lieu of taxes. Pay your fair share. I was in, in, engaging with, with activists in New Haven about Yale, you know, $32 billion endowment. And, um, you know, I've had administrators mm-hmm. saying, well, the, the endowments are restricted. You can't just do whatever you want to with them. But then, and they, and they, they can seize when I point this out. They're like, oh, yeah, that's true. They're like, I'm like, you know, but yeah, it's restricted based on capital campaigns. Every year when university makes a capital campaign saying we need money for X, Y, and Z, that's what restricts it. So universities mm. set the restrictions. So if you if you create a restriction saying we want money for community development or yeah. affordable housing in our in our surrounding neighborhoods, then it would be the endowment would be restricted for that. So don't don't try to play me with that argument. You know what I'm saying? Like I understand I got receipts. I understand the yeah. economy here. I understand how it works. <laughs> Um, so it's, you know, it's that community benefits agreements. If you're going to expand and build out into these neighborhoods, then you have to engage in a community benefits agreement so that these schools, these, these communities get some kind of benefits from the area. So right now the partnership between U Chicago and the Obama library, and this for years, this was like sacrilegious for anybody in Chicago to say anything negative about Obama, but his library in the South side in Woodlawn, speculators Mm. were following behind even just the naming of it. Speculators sprinted down to Woodlawn and began engaging in speculation, and housing costs were just skyrocketing above the means of the current residents. And so they were asking for residents. I've been fighting for 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 years, for a couple of years, saying we need some community benefits mm-hmm. agreements. We need some affordable housing down here. We need there to be um, a, a a property tax trust so that if housing costs go up above our means, there's a trust we can pull from to stay here. We want, and that's that's something I heard Mm. all over the country. We want development, but development without displacement, right? And Mm. so CBAs can do all types of things. They can create those trusts. They can they create community land trusts, Mm -hmm. which we saw in Buffalo, um, where the 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 next mayor, the socialist mayor of uh, of, that's going to be the mayor of Buffalo, India Walton, she cut her activist teeth fighting for community land trust when um, the University of Buffalo's medical campus began to expand in the historically black neighborhood of the fruit of the fruit belt neighborhood. Huh. That's where she cut her activist teeth because she was living there as a nurse and saw what was going on and began to engage and call for community land trust so that speculators couldn't come in and flip houses and flip land. That community land control would be in the hands of the residents in the community. So schools could set the term yeah. for that. Schools could, as we said earlier, schools could set living wages. It could hmm. say that if, if we're going to engage in a subcontractor, that they have to follow our living wage mandate. Um, something as simple as, uh, and during the pandemic, you Chicago hmm. began to take the food they didn't use from the cafeteria and put it and turn it into healthy meals for um, the food insecure residents in surrounding neighborhoods. 
why haven't schools been doing this all the time? You know, because of health codes, they have to throw away tons of food every day. Why yeah. hasn't this food been converted into healthy meal options for the student, for residents of need in surrounding areas? Mm. Endowments. Mm -hmm. Why aren't endowments being put in community banks or community-serving financial institutions? They dump these endowments in these money market accounts, and they end up spending more money on the financial planner than they do on community good projects. So, so schools like Columbia and Harvard, they made money during the pandemic and also got CARES Act money. Hmm. While historically black colleges took their CARES Act money and yeah. spent it on clearing the debt of, of, of students who were in debt, right? What does Harvard do with its, with its endowment? It's buying up land in California to gain yeah. control of water rights with the knowledge that water is going to be a hot, com hot commodity because of the environmental concerns. So they're engaging in speculative futures with their endowments that will just put more and more money into their endowment. And if you look at Moody's crediting, crediting credit rating system, this, this is important because Moody gives higher ratings to schools that have big, that just sit on big endowments. They give higher ratings to schools, get this, that have weak fi faculty governance. Mm -hmm. They give higher credit ratings to schools that don't have labor unions <laughs> because they can be more nimble in the face of crises. They can fire people. Mm -hmm. They can shift money. So the point being here is that because of this all this this debt this debt financialization and credit ratings that being exploitative actually is something that's prized in the privatization market it's a value right so also we so the response to that is things like pilots things like community yeah, community land trusts community benefits agreements yeah. a community based planning and zoning board crafting neighborhood plans on all campus projects should come before a community zoning board um you know, during the, the last March Madness, you had stu uh, black athletes with T-shirts that said, not NCAA property. So revenues from March Madness and other areas should not just go to students. It should go to yeah. the communities where these stadiums sit that reap billions but offer nothing back. So this leads me to the examples of like Buffalo in the epilogue and mm -hmm. the University of Winnipeg. University of Winnipeg is not... Uh, you know, it's 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 not a pure, inherently good, uh, story into itself. It's a product of of social movement that it, it engages some of the same yeah. practices we talked about before: building in the neighborhood with its buildings mm. back facing the community, right? So in kind of bunker, you know, old west settlement circling the wagons mentality. It did all that. It demolished a, a roller rink in the community that was seen as a public good. Yeah. Um, it didn't demolish. It got demolished. And they built a science center on top of the area where it got demolished. So there was some bad blood. But from a self-interest standpoint, they realized that their population of their, of their students exploded in the 2000s from 6,000 to 10,000. The majority of those students were not the typical white suburban family. It was indigenous because they serve, they live in an it's situated in an indigenous community. It's new Canadians, what we call immigrants, hmm. refugees, um, and working class residents. That was the biggest population. Mm -hmm. 
So they knew that in order to service mm-hmm. that population, this is a great foreshadowing mm-hmm. for what's going to happen in the U.S., what's already happening in the U.S. But we're, hold, we're holding the line on that traditional white family that can pay $70,000 a year to go to an IV or a semi-IV or even $50,000 to go to a public university out of state. We're still holding on to that. But those, yep. those families aren't producing babies. So this is this is happening in Winnipeg yep. a couple years earlier. So like you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna meet yep. the needs of our actual changing population, they need yep. a different set <laughs> yeah. of support services. Exactly. So they began building yep. their own facilities with, on what had primarily been a commuter school that was becoming residential. They began mm-hmm. building facilities mm-hmm. that were mixed in nature, premium rate for residents that were in the entire city, market rate, affordable rate, rate geared to income, with services so and, and with these in these units you couldn't tell the difference between there was no distinctions they were all the same they were interchangeable except for the premium rates had balconies that helped underwrite the rest of the buildings they have child care facilities that the the student government helped pay for an extension on child care facilities where uh, residents could could mm-hmm. be put in a lottery to gain access to it still not perfect but these opportunities they at one time had a contract with Aramark the, the food service behemoth, like Sedesco, Marriott, Aramark, we know the names. They fired them and created Diversity Foods, their own uh, food service company, where 65 to 70% of the employees come from the surrounding yeah. neighborhoods and are primarily first uh, uh, um, uh, recently incarcerated, LGBTQ, single mothers, new Canadian, refugee, indigenous. Um, they've begun to try to engage in profit sharing instead of just wage and wages, profit sharing. And then from the environmental side, uh, about 60% of their, of their, um, rev of their resources, their food, Mm. their food services come from local farms within a hundred kilometer radius. Their workstations have, um, compost bins next to them. They send the cooking oil out to be converted into biodiesel. I mean, you know, this is great. And it's, it's not even for, for, for activists and residents in the city, this still isn't, isn't even enough. I talked to um, Professor Silver in the predominantly indigenous community on the north end. He's like, but most indigenous residents aren't, indigenous residents aren't even going to come yeah. <laughs> to the campus. So he got a, a grant from the, from the province, what we call the state, uh-huh. to take his urban and inner cities department and move it directly into the north end and create yeah. a housing, educational, living complex for in, the indigenous community. That has many of the same facilities and services, housing at rate get to income, but also it includes indigenous cultural services. It has a, a, a unit in the housing for an elder to meet the cultural needs of the of the students and residents. I mean, this is just amazing. So when when communities and administrators in the U.S. saying, "Well, you got all these critiques. What's your solutions?" These are the kinds of solutions. Yeah. Or India Walton, who's going to become the next mayor of Buffalo. Socialist Mayor Buffalo, again, she began her activist work in trying to push back land speculation when Buffalo's, when U Buffalo's medical school mm-hmm. was encroaching on the Fruit Belt neighborhood. Community land trusts are a, another opportunity, another solution, another possible solution that the value of homes is not in its uh, um, kind of real estate value, but it's in the home being a place where people live and create and build mm-hmm. their family and the value of the home stays with the community and is, does not go with the seller and the buyer. And people say, well, that's not, that's not fair. But the other side is that, well, you were able to buy into the home at an affordable cost because it's a part of a community land trust, so that value stays with mm-hmm. the land. You get a small profit, 
but you can't just engage in speculative flipping. So these are the kinds of solutions that we see in real time. Mixed housing for students and, and residents at different point points. And, and what we yeah. saw in Winnipeg is happening, is coming to this country, coming to the U.S. Yeah. The response has been austerity measures. If we can't find that mythical unicorn of the white family that can pay $7,000 a year, we'll just downsize. But a different approach could be, we'll start looking at the Pell-eligible community that's growing, those who carry grants and loans with them that are not from elite families. But if you do, again, approach them and serve them, like in Winnipeg, Mm. they will require different services. Not just them, but their families who live in the neighborhoods around the campuses, which means that the ways in which you already are in the community in an extractive way, you'll have to be in the community in a revitalizing way, in a humane way in a commenting way. You have to open up your campus because those who are on your campus now are from these communities. And you have to build out a more expansive and comprehensive Mm -hmm. ecosystem that takes that into account if you want to survive as the the traditional model of higher education is undoubtedly going through a crisis. You're gonna have to pivot. And I'm advocating this kind of pivot, not the Amazon partnership pivot. Well, I hope to God that your your option wins out, Tavarian. Uh, believe me, um, the, man, this has been great. What what are you working on now? What's the next thing for you? Yeah, wow, that's a good question. I mean, actually, what I want, what's happening is that with um, this book, I have begun to work with various communities. So in New Haven, New Haven Rising, in Philadelphia, um, the Black Bottom Coalition, which is which is waging battle with. Uh, Drexel and UPenn. Um, mm-hmm. I've ta- I've, I'm working with activists and residents in Charlottesville, dealing with UVA. Um, before, um, you know, the, the mayor of New York, the current mayor of New York, put together a uh, racial justice commission um, that would have an impact on the city's charter about what can and cannot be done. At least set set standards for how the the city should interact with its with its residents. So mm-hmm. I'm working with them because it is the biggest company town. Uh, 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 campus town, college town in the country, uh, New York. And so I'm working with them to do that kind of work. I'm going to try to figure out how to get to Northern Virginia and and try to write up some public um, essays and work on this Amazon campus. I, I hope to work with you on that. Um, I would love that. So so uh, what's, what I'm doing now is I'm building out my Smart Cities Lab. And, and the major point mm-hmm. about that is when we think about Smart Cities, we usually think about tech. Yep. And infrastructure. Um, but I argue in my in the kind of tagline is that this, the smartest cities develop without displacing, that we can't forget about the people. And so yeah. with that in mind, um, the things that the consulting that I'm doing with these various communities is coming out of the smart cities, um, smart cities lab, the research that I didn't I wasn't able to include in the book has now serving as a clearinghouse database to serve. Mm-hmm. public interest and community groups and residents in their different negotiations with higher ed or with their cities in general. So the Smart Cities Lab, it deals with de- um, developing a more just and humane um, um, urban communities um, with a focus on higher education develop- uh, higher education-based development. Mm-hmm. But the issues of IP, affordable housing, policing, land, yeah. it's a- applicable to cities writ large. So yeah. that's what I'm yep. I'm I focusing my attention to right now is trying to build that out and 
and actually, you know, people, you know, serve the public, what we've been mandated to do, the research. I had the benefit of having yeah. time and the job to do research and development, you know, not from a tech side, but from mm -hmm. a, a research side. And so the job yeah. now is say, make this work available to the public so you can make decisions about how you want to move going forward. And so I hope this is what happens. Yeah. It's, it's happening. I hope it in continue. It increases. I hope it increases. Amen, man. Well, I, you know, please get, let me know about Nova yeah. and, uh, and I wish you the best with these other, I think it's really important. And, um, thank you so much for doing this work. Thank you for writing this book to and thank you for taking the Thanks time. Thanks so today, much for your time. And if anybody has any questions, you can hit me up on Twitter at DeVarian Baldwin and, and I'm sure Lee as well. And let's continue this conversation. It's about, it's time to build out more humane communities, whether it's a city, a college town, um, we have to know what's at stake and, and who's in our backyard and what they're doing and, and, and come together. So thanks for this time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks. <laughs>